I like to, to, to read the text, but on these long narrative passages, uh, it's important for us to get it, to, to get the whole storyline. And we haven't enough time for me to read as much as I want to talk about today because the message is in the pictures of the events, two different events that take place. Now, always when I preach, and anybody preaches, there's a variety of goals, most certainly that you know God and trust Him. That's the overriding all of it. But in the midst of that, of course, there is this part of application, which is, is, is what does this mean? The so what question. What does this really mean to us? And, and how does it inform and transform our lives? That's important to us, and we certainly want to make sure that's there. That, for me, is always subservient to a Another goal, which is that you get the text, that you understand what the Bible means uh, in the passages that we read. Because if you get the text, if you understand the point of the passage, then you can make application far beyond that which I could ever suggest in the context of your life. I suggest things so that we can see how it can apply and does apply indeed in our lives. But, But I trust if you understand the meaning of the Word of God, then you can take it in the context of your own lives and the lives of us together and, and apply. But, but what's really important today, of all days, is it marked upon your mind, I think, are two pictures of two people, two kings, a father and a son, who are reacting very, very differently to the reading of the Word of God. And I think if you can picture them in your minds and keep them there, it will help you. So I want to read very deliberately Second uh, Kings chapter 22, verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. I've been reviewing with you these king lists, or short king lists in ancient Judah. We started with Manasseh, bad king. Josiah, good king. Jehoiakim, bad king. Zedekiah, bad king. Okay, that's been the kind of mark. So Josiah, good king. He's eight years old when he, when he starts out, so obviously he had some help from his mother and others. But, but uh, they began to reign at, at eight. And, and, and this incident takes place, you'll notice, in verse 3. It says, in the 18th year of King Josiah. And so this is about 622 B.C. All right, just to get that in your mind, just for today, you won't remember that past today. But 622, unless you mark it in your Bible, then you can be really smart in your next Bible study that opens up to 2 Kings. You go, oh, this was about 622 B.C. And everyone will be impressed. Put your thumb on the little mark where you've written it down, they won't know. Um, Then confess your pride. But, uh, and mine for leading you into sin. I don't want to go there. But anyway. So, so 18th year, 622 uh, B.C. Remember, Jerusalem falls in 586 B.C. Remember, B.C.s were going backwards. So it's still some time before the fall of Jerusalem. So, so King Josiah, in the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, son of Meshulam, the secretary, to the house of the Lord, saying, now take note of some of these names are going to be difficult, but you'll hear them again. Go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected for the people. So basically, Josiah is just sending this message to the priest to count the money, so they know how much money they have. Then verse um, verse 8. 
And Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the secretary, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. We've talked about this before, that the book of the law, probably Deuteronomy, may have been more, may have been the whole Pentateuch. We don't know, but he's found the book of the law in the temple. It's, it's been lost, if you will. They haven't read it for decades. I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan, the secretary, came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. Now notice verse 11. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam the son of Shaphan and Akbor the son of Micaiah and Shaphan the secretary and Asaiah the king's servant saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that is found for great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning it. So you get the impression, okay, the book is read, let's say Deuteronomy, was read to King Josiah, he listened to it, and what he was listening to was the covenant. He was listening to Moses write about the covenant of God, about what they were to do, how they were to live, and then the blessings if they lived that way, and the curses if they didn't. It doesn't take Josiah too much to realize we haven't done this. We haven't lived like this. We've dishonored the true and living God. And so we're in trouble. The wrath of God is kindled against us. And so he gets it. And so he rips his clothes, which means he's in repentance. He's saying, God, we've offended you. We get it. We understand that. We are sorry. Please forgive us. And I won't read the end of this, but the end of this goes something like this. They, they go off and, and a prophetess comes to them and basically says to them that, yes, God has indeed issued a decree to judge Judah, but he will not judge Judah during the days of Josiah. He'll let him live because Josiah has heard the word of the Lord and repented. Now, turn to Jeremiah and chapter 36. We're a bit down the road. We are in now the reign of Josiah's son, Jehoiakim. It's now 605 to 604 B.C. In this chapter, we start out mid six, early to mid-605 B.C. We move to mid-604 uh, B.C. We move from probably spring to winter, even in the midst of that. So we have about an 18-month turnaround here, perhaps, something like that, uh, as, we, as we work our way through this chapter. Now, if you've been, and you have been, paying attention has been working our way through Jeremiah. I, I told you in the beginning, as we started this, that Jeremiah isn't laid out chronologically. So in chapters 31, 32, 33, uh, we were uh, at about 587, 85, um, yeah, 597 B.C. And so um, we were a bit further, uh, a bit earlier, in, in, I mean later in all of this. And so now we're 605. Uh, so he's come back some to come now into the reign of, of Jehoiakim, the son of, of Josiah. Now politically, it's important to realize as we come to this chapter that as the chapter begins, um, Judah is a vassal of Egypt, meaning that Judah is paying protection money 
to Egypt, tribute money to Egypt. They're paying Egypt to, to sort of be their, 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 their protector. However, during this time, Babylon, the Babylonians, uh, defeat the Egyptians, which puts Judah in a very precarious position because no longer is Egypt able then to protect Judah. So the Babylonians come against the Egyptians, beat the Egyptians, and now, towards the middle of this chapter, the Babylonians are on the march and end up in Palestine, close to Judah. So that's the circumstance. They feel very vulnerable uh, because the Egyptians can no longer protect them. All right. Chapter 36, verse 1. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. So he's Josiah's son. Good King Josiah's son. But Jehoiakim is a bad king. He reinstituted the worship of idols and all of that in the temples and reversed all the gains, spiritual gains, if you will, made during his father's reign. Fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah. The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take a scroll and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations from the day I spoke to you from the days of Josiah until today. Now, that would be quite a bit because, in one sense, because uh, Jeremiah has been doing this for about 20 years from the time he began till this time. He hasn't seemingly written it down yet. And so over a period of time, we've read many of these prophecies. Uh, uh, over a period of time, Jeremiah has said all these things. Now God's coming to him and say, write it down. Not uncommon for God to say that. We'll see in a minute that throughout the scripture, he was telling his prophets to write stuff down from Moses on through. And so Jeremiah is now being told to write, to write, this, to write this down, as, in a sense, as a testimony uh, against um, the people. And so he's being told now uh, to write it all down. Uh, We don't know exactly how much that would have been. It's difficult to know, but certainly a good bit of the first 25 chapters and then some other chapters towards the end of Jeremiah as well. And so he says, Take a scroll, write, uh, write on it all the words that I've spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations from the day I spoke to you from the days of Josiah until today. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the disaster that I intend to do to them so that everyone may turn from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. Notice, the purpose of all of this is so that the people will hear, as Josiah did, will hear and repent of their sin so that God could spare them. Always implied in these warnings of God, always implied in these judgment words of God, is, is that if you repent and you turn from your wicked ways, just like in Nineveh and other places, then I'll forgive your sins. It's always there. And so we, we see so much here just in this expression because, because God continues to come back to the people generation after generation and say, I know what the covenant says. I know it says I should destroy you, but, 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 but let me just say, let me give it to you again so that you'll repent. And then they don't. And God says, "Mm, let me give it to you again so that you'll repent. And even still, even though the judgment's going to come and it does come, uh, he gives them, again, opportunity, opportunity, opportunity to repent. We see the justice, the fairness, the mercy of God in the midst of all of this. But it's important for us to realize that when we come to the scripture, it's to lead us to repentance. To say, I'm wrong, you're right. To say, no, not my way, but your way. To say that, oh, 
forgive me for my sin. And ah, I see how it is that I'm to live. Give me the grace in order that I may live. In order that I may live that way. Well, Jesus lays out this in a sense in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, "Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek." Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Because you get this sense, blessed are the poor in spirit. I come to the word of God and I realize my spiritual bankruptcy. And then I mourn. I mourn over my sin. I mourn over the sin of the people. I get it. I understand about life. And I get all of that from the reflection of God's word into my life. It's what James says. He says the word of God is like a mirror. It were to look in it and it's to have an impact on us. If we look in the mirror and make no changes, what good was the mirror? We look in the mirror and see nearly nothing. What good is the mirror? And so the Word of God is that mirror to us. You see, it shows us the very image of God. It shows us who He is and who we are in reflection of that. And it's to lead us then to repentance to say, Oh, I see my wrong. Please help me. Restore me. How did David put it in Psalm 51? Create in me a clean, a new, renewed heart. So that's what we say as we come to this word. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek, those ones who come before God and others humble, realizing who they really are. But also blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. You see, if that's the desire of our heart, then, then we come to God, we see our unrighteousness, and we crave the very righteousness of Christ and say, Oh, be that for me. Work that in me. That's what the word of God is to do, is to bring us to that points. The author of Hebrews speaks in very serious terms to the church uh, to whom the author of Hebrews writes. He says to them, Take care, brothers, lest there be any in any of you an unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another day after day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. These, these warnings are to strike us in a particular way. For those who are believers, we hear these warnings and we pay attention. We say, oh yes. Now don't we know that we're secure in our salvation? Yes, but when warnings come, it spur, these spur us on. We, we realize the alternative. For those who only think they're born again, but not, they ignore these warnings. And thus for them there can be no real assurance. And these warnings swipe that assurance away from those who shouldn't be assured. And they bring assurance really to those who should be because we say, yes, that's true. I'll get on with it. And all of this, he says, comes indeed from this word of God, chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. When we read the scripture, what it does to us is lay us bare. Before God, I get it, I see. There's nothing in all the world like that that honestly deals with us and truthfully reveals us to us. David Wells writes concerning Scripture. David Wells, a professor of theology at Gordon-Conwell Seminary, writes... When we come to the scripture, so what is to be our frame of mind? It's telling yourself 
that you are there to hear from God, not to listen to yourself. You are there to be addressed, taught, challenged, and yes, even rebuked by God through the truth of his word. That's the attitude as we come. That's the attitude that they were to have. It appears that it was the attitude that Josiah had, or at least he came to in the midst of his, his hearing. So this is this word to Jeremiah. Write it down so perhaps they'll repent. Verse 4, Then Jeremiah called Baruch the son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote on a scroll at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord that he had spoken to him. And Jeremiah ordered Baruch, saying, I'm banned from going to the house of the Lord. Now, you might remember chapter 7 of Jeremiah, and it was carried on in chapter 26 as well, where Jeremiah went and gave one of his prophetic words of rebuke to the king and sin and and judgment and all of that. And so they thought they were going to kill him. For that he was protected, not killed obviously, but it appears from that time on uh, he was banned from going to the temple. Um, That can happen. And so he now says to Baruch, I don't know what Baruch is thinking at this moment. Okay, the last time you went to the temple to tell them what I'm going to tell them, they were going to kill you. Now you're sending me? I appreciate that, brother. Jeremiah ordered Baruch saying, I am banned from going to the house of the Lord, so you are to go. And on the day of fasting, in the hearing of all the people in the Lord's house, you shall read the words of the Lord from the scroll that you have written at my dictation. You shall read them also in the hearing of all the men of Judah who come out of their cities. It may be that their plea for mercy will come before the Lord. Again, what's the reason for all of this? The reason is they'll hear it and repent and plead for God's mercy. It may be that their plea for mercy will come before the Lord and that everyone will turn from his evil way for great is the anger and wrath that the Lord has pronounced against his people. And Baruch, the son of Neriah, did all that Jeremiah the prophet ordered him about reading from the scroll the words of the Lord in the Lord's house. Now, verse 9. In the fifth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, in the ninth month. So we've gone from the fourth year We don't know quite what month, but now we're in the fifth year. So we've gone from 605 to 604. And since it is um, the ninth month, it's probably around December, which means it would be cold. That's important. So in the fifth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, in the ninth month, all the people in Jerusalem and all the people who came from the cities of Judah to Jerusalem proclaimed a fast before the Lord. This was not a regularly scheduled fast on their calendar. Um, Jeremiah must have uh, been prophetic when he said, read it at the day of fasting. Uh, Because at this point in time, in the ninth month of this fourth or fifth year of King Jehoiakim, um, was the year that the Babylonians entered into Palestine. And so no doubt there was a national crisis. Oh no, they're coming. What are we going to do? And so a fast is declared so the people in some religious sense at least can come uh, before the Lord. Verse 10, then in the hearing of all the people, Baruch read the words of Jeremiah from the scroll in the house of the Lord in the chamber of uh, Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, the secretary, which was uh, in the upper court at the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house. You might remember Shaphan, the secretary, from the reign of King Josiah. And now his son has a prominent place in the temple, a residence probably of some kind, an office or something like that, we might say, uh, from which uh, Baruch can read uh, the, his, the law. And so if you get this picture, Baruch would then have the attention of everyone in the courtyard. 
and all the people who would come for the fast. So it's a great day to read because everyone is there. Verse 11. When Mechaiah, the son of um, Gamar, uh, Gamariah, son of Shaphan, heard all the words of the Lord from the scroll, he went down to the king's house, into the secretary's chamber, and all the officials were sitting there. So he takes this. He hears this word. So then he goes down where all the officials of the king are, are, are hanging out. Elishama, the secretary, Delaiah, the son of Shemaiah, um, El Nathan, the son of Akbor, I don't know how he got in there, he didn't rhyme at all. Um, Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, Zedekiah, the son of Hananiah, and all the officials. And Mechaiah told them all the words that he had heard when Baruch read the scroll in the hearing of the people. Then all the officials sent Jehudi, the son of Nethaniah, the son of Shalemiah, the son of Cushi, to say to Baruch, Take in your hand the scroll that you read in the hearing of the people and come. So Baruch, the son of Neriah took the scroll in his hand and came to them. And they said to him, sit down and read it. So Baruch read it to them, second reading. When they heard all the words, they turned to one another in fear. Good response. Good response. And they said to Baruch, we must report all these words to the king. Then they asked Baruch, tell us, how did you write all these words? Was it at his dictation? Now, that's an interesting question. But why should they risk themselves if this wasn't the word of the prophet? Why should they risk themselves before the king if this was just Baruch just writing some stuff down? No, no, he, he, he said, assure us that what we're about to do isn't stupid. Assure us that, that you're really credible here. Baruch answered them. He dictated all these words to me while I wrote them down with ink on the scroll. Then the officials said to Baruch, Go now, go and hide you and hide you and Jeremiah, and let no one know where you are. They're being very realistic about what's what's in their hands. And so they kindly want to protect Baruch and Jeremiah. Verse twenty. So they went to the court of the king, having put the scroll on the chamber of Elishama, the secretary, and they reported all the words to the king. Then the king sent Jehudai to get the scroll, and he took it from the chamber of Elishama, the secretary, and Jehudai read, read it to the king and all the officials who stood beside the king. It was the ninth month, and the king was sitting in the winter house, so it's cold, and there was a fire burning in the fire pot before him. As Jehuda read three or four columns, then the king would cut them off with a knife and throw them into the fire, in the fire pot, until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the fire pot. Yet neither the king nor any of his servants who heard all these words was afraid, nor did they tear their garments. Even when Elnathan and Delaiah and Gemariah urged the king not to burn the scroll, he would not listen to them. And the king commanded Jeremiel, the king's son, and Saraiah, the son of Azrael, and Shalemiah, and the son of Abdeel, to seize Baruch the secretary and Jeremiah the prophet. But the Lord hid them. That should strike us as a scene from a horror movie. It's one thing to simply neglect, I suppose, the Word of God. That's bad enough. But to carefully, slowly, deliberately, column after column, cut it up, 
and throw it in the fire. Should cause chills to run up and down our spine. It should make us afraid even to think these thoughts, even to have that that picture in our mind. Since I've been reading the book of Jeremiah over and over again for the last number of months, uh, I realize how personal all this is to God. One of the most convicting statements, we were just talking about this the other night at our elders' meetings, one of the most convicting statements for me in this whole book comes from chapter 2, where in verse 5, where God speaking to the people says, What wrong did your fathers find in me when they went far from me and went after worthless, worthlessness and became worthless? In other words, when I think of sin, okay, I can put that in various categories, but the category God puts it in is himself being the hurt lover because I found someone more satisfying than him. And when I think of that, I, I can't avoid the personalness of sin to God. And now when I come to this, I can't help but think of the personalness of my hearing of response to affection for God's word. As I see Jehoiakim deliberately throwing it into the fire and not being moved by it at all, not being afraid of what he hears at all. How cold, how horrible is all of that. So you see the contrast that I'm trying to produce here. The Bible produces. You have King Josiah. Here's the word. Rips his clothes in repentance. And God doesn't reject him, but in fact rebuilds. And then we see his son, Jehoiakim. Listening to the word of God. Doesn't rip his clothes, he rips the word. And he doesn't repent, but he himself is rejected. And destruction will come to his house. Verse 27, now after the king had burned the scroll with the words that Baruch had written at Jeremiah's dictation, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Take another scroll. And write on it all the former words that were in the first scroll, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, has burned. And concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, you shall say, Thus says the Lord, you have burned this scroll, saying, Why have you written in it that the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy this land, will cut off, uh, cut off from it man and beast? Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he shall have none to sit on the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out to the heart to the heat by day and frost by night, and I will punish him and his offspring and his servants for their iniquity. I will bring upon them and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem and upon the people of Judah all the disaster that I have pronounced against them. But they would not hear. Then Jeremiah took another scroll and gave it to Baruch, the scribe, the son of Neriah, and wrote on it, at the dictation of Jeremiah, all the words of the scroll that Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire, and many similar words were added to them. You have to feel a little sad for Jehoiakim if he had listened the first time. Then this story wouldn't be in volume two. Because now, Jeremiah is adding this to that, and he would add then the rest as well, along and along as we, as we have it. So, what does this tell us? First, this that God clearly speaks to us, that God has indeed spoken. Francis Schaeffer has a book with the, one of the best titles 
whether you like the book or not, I don't know, but the best titles uh, I've ever seen and it's ever read. And it's simply this, he is there. He is not silent. God speaks. In fact, this word of Jeremiah is on par, we realize, with the books of Moses. Because Josiah heard the book of Moses, Deuteronomy, the very word of God, and it caused him to repent. As Jeremiah's word comes, it is to have the same effect that that book had, and if it doesn't, it's to have the same remedy that that book did, which is judgment. And so it's precisely the same. This Jeremiah is the same as Deuteronomy in in, in equality before God, both being the very word of God. God is there. He has indeed spoken. He is not silent. We read this morning in our call to worship that the heavens declare the glory of God. He speaks. We know that he's spoken by way of his prophets. We know that he's spoken most, especially uniquely, perfectly in the person of his Lord, of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This very one who is grace and truth is this very one who has come, this very one who is God, who has come to reveal God to us, to exegete him, the scripture says in John chapter 1, to to reveal him, to lay him out before us. Rightly, the author of Hebrews speaks uh, very clearly about all of this long ago at many times and in many ways. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world, this very one, his, his son. And of course, all that was written down, all of what the prophet spoke, all of what is true of Jesus is, is all written down for us. In the very early days, God spoke to Moses and says, write this in a book. In fact, it was that very book that Jeremiah meditated on day and night. But then when we get to the end of Jeremiah, we read that Jeremiah is to write the book too, write in the book as well. And so as we read then through, uh, for instance, uh, uh, the kings, we find them making reference to the chronicles of the kings. When we read through the chronicles, we find them making reference to the book of Samuel and the, and the book of Kings. When we read through the Psalms, we, we hear the psalmist speak of the word of God as we read this morning, that it's pure, that it's delight to the very soul and heart. We read that it's a lamp and a light, a lamp to our feet, a light to our way to guide us, to restore us, to preserve us, to keep us to give us hope, to preserve us, to strengthen us. All of that, this very word of God written that we're to read and to meditate upon. So we come to the New Testament, we see that Jesus uh, anoints his apostles to write as well. He says, the Holy Spirit will come and they will teach you everything that's true about me. And we're not surprised, therefore, because of the tradition of the Old Covenant, that in the New Covenant there's writers as well, these very ones equipped, moved along by the Holy Spirit. So as we come to the book of Acts, what is it that spreads? It's the very word of God. As Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he speaks to them of of, of this truth that he has now once received. And now he's passing along to them. And he realizes that it's authoritative. He realizes that the truth he has is indeed the very word of God. For when he comes to the church in Galatia, he says, Don't believe anything that you're hearing. Only believe that which is the gospel which I preach. It is indeed the very word of God. When he comes to the church of Ephesus, he speaks of this word. And he says, This is the word that cleanses. The word that washes you. 
When he speaks of the church in Thessalonica, he said, when we came to you, you received this word, not as the word of men, but rather as the word of God, which it actually is. It really is the very word of God. When he writes to a son in the faith, Timothy, he says about this scripture, Timothy, you must realize that it is God-breathed. Inspired, better, expired. It's breathed out by God. It's the very word of God. It can't be chained. Paul says, I'm chained, but, it's, but this word can't be chained. As James writes, he refers to it as the royal law of God. It is the law of the king. This very word of God, as Peter writes to us, he says, This word was, did not come from the minds, the imaginations of men, but it came, yes, through men as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, breathed out by Him. Jude says that this is the faith, this word of God is the faith that was once delivered to all the saints. And so you see, there it is. It's the very word of God. We're to come to it. We're to read it. Now, over the centuries, there have been all kinds of attempts to destroy the very word of God. It started early on. It started in the Garden of Eden when, when, when Satan came to Eve and said, Did God really say? So the onslaught began even then. Did God really say? Did God really speak? And when he spoke, did he really say this? And so this, 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 this hostility, this attack against against the truth. We see it in the, in the early churches. Jesus speaks about the danger of false teachers who are to come, as, as Paul and the other apostles write about false teachers that existed in the first church. What were they doing? They were speaking against the truth. They were deluding the truth. They were adding to the truth. They were taking away, putting towards the word of God. And so that was the anathema. That was the problem. Don't follow them. Here is the truth. Follow this. Believe this. Thus, the word of God. Always somebody wanting to rip it up and put it into the fire. In the early centuries of the church, a man by the name of Marcion in the second century said the Old Testament really isn't the word of God. Only that which is bits of Luke and the writings of Paul. That's it. So he wanted to destroy the rest of it and keep it from the people. Diocletian, an early leader in the early fourth century, an emperor, wanted to ban and burn and destroy all Bibles. Ironically, the emperor after him, Constantine, ordered 50 copies of the Bible perfectly bound. And that was a big undertaking, by the way, in those days, not like today when you could do that in an afternoon with your computer. Right. Even the church fought against keeping the word of God out of the hands of the people. Thus, Wycliffe and Tyndale, translators of the Bible into the language of the people, were persecuted and, and killed. Greater attacks, perhaps, on the Word of God come from those who say that it isn't the Word of God to try to, in some sense, um, get people from believing it to damage it in various kinds of ways. Throughout the centuries, that has been true as well. We see it in our own day with this Jesus seminar that you may have read about, trying to find that which is authentic in the Scripture and that which isn't, and we find that they're doing away with much of what Jesus actually said, saying this isn't 
really the truth or those in our day who say that there cannot be any real universal human story that is to say that it's impossible because because truth is so influenced by by time and culture that no one truth can sustain people from generation to generation in time and place and time and place and there's no real human story that's eternal because you see, why do you need an eternal word of God if there's no eternal anything? If the Bible says, no, there is. There's something that's, that's, that's universal, that's true concerning all human beings. It's the fact of creation. It's the fact of sin. It's the fact of redemption. It's the fact of consummation. And that's the human story. That's the God story in the midst of all of this. And that's true no matter what century, no matter what culture. All that is true. And each time, each culture must come to grips with that. And yet we have those in our day saying, no, that's not true. There can't be any such narrative like that that describes all of human history. To destroy, you see, the very word of God, to counter it, to come against it. That's what John spoke of in his first epistle as the spirit of Antichrist, that which comes against Christ and sets something over and against Christ to believe rather than trusting in Christ. But yet what we see here is that the word of God cannot be shaken. I don't know exactly what was going through Jeremiah's mind after all that work to dictate the first scroll and then to realize it was burned and say, God, just, God, just say, well, just do it again. Many of you are in, working on dissertations understand that well when your major professor says, save the title. Uh, the rest of it's got to go. <laughs> and you do it again. But there he was, because you see, the word of God cannot be stopped. Isaiah spoke of this in Isaiah in chapter 40. It was amazing to Jeremiah. In this chapter of comfort to the people, God speaks to, Jeremiah, uh, speaks to Isaiah and says, Tell the people, I will forgive their sins. A message similar to that of Jeremiah. I will forgive their sins. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she's received from the Lord. Lord's hand double for all her sins. In other words, God's saying, a time will come of forgiveness. And this is almost too good for Isaiah to, to grab a hold of, to even believe. He says, what's up with that God? So verse 6, a voice says, cry. And I said, that is Jeremiah, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fades. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are like grass. He's saying, God, I know people. I know people. They're like grass. They're just going to blow away. Nothing will ever really change. And so God gives him this confidence. Verse 8, he says, Ah, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. It can't be destroyed. But this message today, I think, is in this picture of these two kings, this father and son. I can't get them out of my mind. On the one hand, I have Josiah. I say, I want to be like that. I want to hear the word of God. I really want it to penetrate my heart. I want to confess my sin, turn from it, 
and seek after God. But then I have in my mind Jehoiakim. I don't think I'm that deliberate. I don't think I'm that way when I hear the word of God. But do I simply neglect it? Do I simply just let it run out of my ears? And I don't really think about it. Does it really impact me? I don't want to be like that. Let's pray. Father, I pray, God, for me, for us, that we would be people like Josiah when we hear this word that we rip our clothes, not the word. That we repent and not reject the word that comes to us. Now, there's hard words that come to us that that cut deep across Perhaps all that we've been taught by the world and and maybe that which still lurks within us is a strong pull inclination upon us. And so I pray that we would be, I would be people that hears this word of God, our creator, judge, redeemer of sin, our own condition of Christ and his atonement and rule of grace that brings, that brings faith like the apostles of Jesus to listen to him and say where can we go you have the words of eternal life so I pray God that your word would have its way in us accomplish its purpose in us that that purpose would be a purpose to bring grace to bring faith to bring forgiveness to bring restoration that we may walk with you Father, we lift those in our congregation this morning with particular needs that they too would hear your word and receive it and be comforted, comforted by it. I pray for Kelly and Marietta Liebengood and little Cade, their son this morning as he's in the hospital in Texas with viral meningitis. Father, I pray that you would grant them grace. Father, I pray for Drew and Becca Ryan. In D.C., Father, for their little one, Lily, a little infant daughter, having heart surgery on Monday. Father, continue to be with them. We pray for Lily that you would heal her of this condition with which she was born. And, and that these surgeries, Father, would prove successful that she may live and live well, we pray. Pray for Megan Boyd, Father, as she continues to be plagued with this cancer and pray you would grant comfort and peace to her and her family. We do give you thanks for Isabel Grace Bartlow, born to Whitney and Andrew this week, and we're grateful, Father, for that life. Bless them. Thanks for the good report on Shannon Sell's mom's surgery. We pray you continue to bring healing there. Can we thank you for Amy being with us this morning. Bless her, Father, in her work and life. Uh, Continue to strengthen her. May your word be her great protection and strength. For David and Chelsea Keim, Father, as they work in an orphanage this week in China, that you would be with them, God, and bless them and their team. 
God, for all of us, we pray that we would have been able to buy you, strengthened by your word that is eternal, that will never fade nor fail. Father, that we'd be strengthened by it, preserved by it, that it would be a lamp to us, a light to us, to guide us, to keep us. May we respond always, God, to it in a way that reveals that we know who you are, we know who we are, and we know our great need and your wonderful supply. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction.